Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 26th edition of WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision clarifies an applicant's Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Here's what happened in the case of Bobby Clemens versus Bob Reed, Incorporated. Clemens filed an application for his admitted industrial injury to his right knee while employed by George Reed, Incorporated. The employer voluntarily paid him for various periods of temporary disability. At Clemens' deposition, the employer learned that Clemens also ran and performed services for a private wheelchair lift company, which he apparently personally owned. The employer suspected that Clemens received TD at the same time he got income from his business. The employer therefore requested various business records from this self-owned company to further investigate the case. Clemens refused to provide any records, claiming that it would violate his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. The work comp judge overruled his objections at a WCAB conference and ordered him to provide his business records. Clemens filed a petition for removal, seeking to have this order reversed. Instead, the panel decision affirmed the order to provide the records in the case of Bobby Clemens versus George Reed, Incorporated. The WCAB panel first questioned if the Fifth Amendment even applies to these business records since they are not testimonial and the preparation of these records was not compelled. Further, the WCAB noted that there were exceptions to evidentiary privileges when the person claiming the privilege initiates litigation to obtain benefits. In the 1979 case of Powers v. WCAB, the Court of Appeals cited three cases which held the privilege against self-incrimination was waived as to matters which are directly relevant to litigation commenced by the holder of the privilege. One of the three cases was the 1978 case of Britt v. Superior Court of San Diego County. In that case, the California Supreme Court said that the privilege against self-incrimination has been held to be subject to a waiver exception as to matters which are directly relevant to litigation commenced by the holder of the privilege. After reviewing these cases, the WCAB concluded that applicant cannot have his cake by receiving temporary disability benefits and eat it too by claiming privilege and denying defendant its equally compelling constitutional right to defend itself by rebutting applicant's claims. Applicant's petition for removal was denied. The Court of Appeal approved a contested settlement of the AIG claim adjuster's class action. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Karen Keeler versus AIG Domestic Claims. Keeler was a workers' compensation insurance claims adjuster for AIG. She filed a class action complaint against AIG alleging that they failed to pay her overtime compensation, provide meal and rest periods, properly paid discharged employees, failed to provide itemized wage statements to employees, and that AIG committed unfair business practices. The complaint was based on the theory that AIG misclassified employees as exempt from overtime requirements. In 2009, the parties reached a settlement for $1,400,000. In 2010, the trial court granted preliminary approval of the settlement after several hearings that reviewed evidence that was adverse to the claims made by Keeler. 
For example, one federal district court previously found that AIG properly classified the same workers' compensation claims adjuster positions as exempt. A settlement administrator sent class members notice of the settlement and several class members filed an objection to the settlement for various reasons, including inadequacy. At a subsequent hearing, the trial court heard their arguments and objections at length and directed the class counsel to provide additional information to investigate their objections. Later, the trial court granted tentative final approval of the settlement after reviewing the supplemental information that was requested. Based on all the evidence, the court found the settlement fair, reasonable, and adequate and granted final approval of the settlement and dismissed the case. The objecting parties timely appealed. The Court of Appeal, in the unpublished opinion of Karen Keeler versus AIG Domestic Claims, found no abuse of discretion in the trial court's approval of the settlement. The judgment was affirmed. The Court of Appeal ruled that a school district industrial leave benefit is unconditional and must be paid even if the employee is unable to perform their job. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of the California School Employees Association versus Vista Unified School District. Deborah Gill was a bus driver involved in a bus accident during the course of her employment with Vista Unified School District. She filed a claim and began receiving workers' compensation benefits equal to about two-thirds of her normal salary. The case before the Court of Appeal involved the industrial accident leave benefits which the district refused to pay. These benefits are set forth in Educational Code 45192 and approximate the rem remaining one-third of her normal salary. The district did not pay the leave benefit after Gill's bus driver certificate expired. School bus drivers are required to have a valid school bus driver certificate and Gill's certificate was set to expire shortly after she had her injury. Three days after her accident, the district's transportation director sent her a letter stating that her certificate was due to expire and that she needed more training to be eligible to test for renewal of the certificate. Her last day of paid administrative leave would be the date her school bus driver certificate would expire, and she would then be on unpaid administrative leave pending reinstatement of her certificate. After receiving these communications, Gill apparently satisfied some but not all of the requirements to renew the certificate. She was then given a grace period and a warning letter, but still did not meet the requirements. During this time frame, Gill had not been released by a doctor to return to work and she remained on industrial accident leave. Her union, the CSEA, intervened demanding that the district continue to pay benefits and requested that they follow due process requirements for any action they might take. The district thus scheduled a Skelly hearing, but Gill decided to retire before the hearing date. The Skelly hearing was canceled and the district did not continue the termination process. However, the CSEA continued to pursue the leave benefits from the date her certificate expired up until the time she retired. The union filed a petition for writ of mandate in the Superior Court to force the district to pay her over $6,000, the balance due in statutory industrial accident leave benefits. The district argued she was not entitled to the industrial leave benefits because she was no longer qualified for her job 
due to the expiration of her bus driver's certificate. Gill argued that there was nothing in the Education Code making the industrial accident leave benefits contingent on the maintenance of a job certificate or license. The Superior Court found Gill was entitled to the industrial leave benefits even though her bus driver's certificate expired, noting that the district had not cited any authority requiring an employee on leave to take efforts to maintain or renew licenses or certificates. The Court of Appeal agreed in the unpublished opinion of CSEA versus Vista Unified School District. Although the expiration of a certificate or license could impact the employee's ability to return to work upon medical release, the court concluded that it does not impact the employee's right to receive industrial accident leave benefits. A panel of federal judges in Florida is scheduled to consider consolidation of several NFL player lawsuits. About 10 lawsuits, including a California case brought by nearly 100 former players, have been filed across the nation against the NFL. Some have already been merged into class actions. A panel of federal judges will meet on January 26th in Miami to decide whether to consolidate the lawsuits into a single case. One of the latest cases involves Dorsey Levins and Jamal Lewis, both named to the annual All-Star Pro Bowl, as well as Fulton, Kutendahl, and Ryan Stewart. These four players filed the lawsuit against the National Football League and NFL Properties last week in the United States District Court in Atlanta. The suits are the latest in several similar cases filed by former players who say the league did not do enough to protect them from concussions. The Atlanta suit alleges the NFL knew as early as the 1920s of the potential for concussions, but only made them public in 2010. In response, the league said it had long made player safety a priority and continues to do so. The four ex-players live in the Atlanta area. The men said they had a number of medical problems arising from their playing days. They include memory loss, headaches, and sleeplessness. A class action lawsuit has been filed against Apple Incorporated, alleging that Apple devised an illegal scheme of classifying at-home call center employees as independent contractors. The complaint alleges Apple avoided paying its share of payroll taxes and other business-related expenses, such as workers' compensation, through the use of a yellow dog contract. The case of Hilton versus Apple Incorporated is currently pending in Santa Clara Superior Court. According to the allegations of the complaint, Apple hires workers to answer calls from its customers in regard to billing questions and technical support. They classified these employees as independent contractors in order to avoid paying for regular and overtime hours worked as well as other costs. According to the allocations, the at-home call center employees are required by Apple to each form a separate virtual services corporation to act as a shell corporation as part of the scheme to insulate Apple from liability for business-related expenses. The class action lawsuit against Apple refers to these agreements as yellow dog contracts that violate not only employment laws, but also fundamental public policy. A similar class action lawsuit is pending against AT&T for the same allegedly unlawful practice. 
Historically, a yellow dog contract is an agreement between an employer and an employee in which the employee agrees they will not be a member of a labor union. Such contracts were widely used by employers to prevent the formation of unions until the 1930s. In 1932, yellow dog contracts were outlawed in the United States under the Norris LaGuardia Act. Currently, the term yellow dog clause can also have a different meaning, such as a non-compete clause within or appended to a non-disclosure agreement to prevent an employee from working for other employers in the same industry, or in this case, a requirement that the employee form a virtual corporation. And now our fraud report. The latest available data from the Federal Justice Department shows that federal health care fraud prosecutions reached an historic high last year. The government reported 1,235 new health care fraud prosecutions last year, the largest number reported since tracking of this offense began 20 years ago. This number is up almost 69% over the past year when the number of criminal prosecutions totaled 731. Numbers were pushed higher in part by the volume of activity in Puerto Rico, where assistant U.S. attorneys charged 548 defendants with health care fraud. Even if the Puerto Rico prosecutions were set aside, health care fraud prosecutions nationally would still have reached their highest level in over a decade. The Southern District of Florida led the nation in activity, accounting for nearly one out of every nine health care fraud prosecutions, followed by the Southern District of Texas. Together, these two districts accounted for over one out of every five health care fraud prosecutions. Prosecutors recovered more than $3 billion in settlements and judgments in civil cases involving fraud against the government in the last fiscal year. And the bulk of that money came from the pharma industry. This marks the second year in a row that the department has recovered more than $3 billion bringing the total since January 2009 to $8.7 billion in recovery. GlaxoSmithKline alone has paid over $750 million to resolve criminal and civil allegations that it submitted false claims to government health care programs. And in financial news, Los Angeles County got hit with a double dose of bad news this week with the release of separate reports that detailed spiraling costs for workers' compensation and litigation. For the first time, the county's workers' comp payments topped an average of more than $1 million a day, with total costs of $374 million a year. Litigation costs rose by 14%, reaching $107 million for settlements, judgments, and attorney fees, according to the county council's annual litigation cost report. Supervisor Michael Antonovich expressed concern over the spike and will ask the county to investigate and take corrective action. Additionally, he said the county should vigorously scrutinize frivolous claims and prosecute cases of fraud while, preventing, while providing a safe work environment. Workers' compensation payments come out of the department's operating budgets and therefore have a direct impact on services. The workers' compensation payments were about 5% higher than the previous year and about 10% higher than two years ago. It appeared to be driven in part by increases in permanent disability and medical treatment costs 
and by increases in the number of claims reported by the fire, sheriffs, and probation departments. More than 24% of the payouts were related to incidents that happened more than 11 years ago. The county also saw an increase in litigation costs. The report said the amounts paid for judgments and settlements increased by one-third to $56.5 million. Settlements alone surged 60% to $43.8 million. More than half of that was related to just six cases. Two of the six involved medical malpractice cases in connection with the treatment of a head injury at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a back injury at Los Angeles County USC Medical Center. The others arose from collisions with a fire truck and a sheriff's vehicle, injuries sustained by a prisoner in a Lakewood station holding cell, and deputies shooting a fleeing robbery suspect. On the positive side, the 127 $4 million in judgments paid by the county represented a 15% decline from the previous fiscal year. The report noted it was the lowest amount paid for judgments in the last four years. However, the future is not looking that bright since the county was hit with 849 new cases, the most in five years. It was in stark contrast to last year when the county had only 673 new cases, which was a three-year low. Insurance Commissioner Dave Jones issued a statement claiming the California workers' compensation market was stable with no surprises after the release of a quarterly financial report by the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau. This report on insurer loss experience shows that insurer losses are similar to what insurers experienced a year ago, and there currently is stability in the workers' compensation insurance market. The WCIRB's decision to refrain from filing mid-year pure premium rate changes absent extraordinary circumstances follows a recommendation from the Department of Insurance following an operational examination of the WCIRB. This will assure employers that there will be fewer unexpected changes in workers' compensation insurance pricing. The current mileage rate of 55.5 cents for medical and medical legal travel expenses will remain unchanged in 2012. This rate must be paid for travel on or after January 1st, regardless of the date of injury. Labor Code Section 4600, in conjunction with Government Code Section 19820 and the Department of Personnel Administration regulations, establishes the rate and ties it to the IRS-published mileage reimbursement rate. The latest announcement marks the first time since 2007 that claims administrators will not need to apply a new rate for travel on or after January 1st. The mileage reimbursement form is posted on the DWC website. And in other news, it is with great sadness that we report the death of Woodland Hills defense attorney Randall Klein. He died this month at the age of 54. Mr. Klein, who had suffered a series of strokes, was a member of the Tobin Lux law firm. He was a certified specialist in workers' compensation. He joined the firm in 1987 and rose to become managing attorney of its Woodland Hills office, a post he relinquished in March of 2010. Irvin Lux, the firm's founder, said that Klein was an exceptional litigator and really loved by his partners and his clients. Lux also said that he was a very unusual individual, very positive, very ethical, 
No one had a bad thing to say about him, and that's how highly respected he was. Klein graduated from El Camino High School in the San Fernando Valley, from UCLA, and from Pepperdine Law School. Klein, who never married, is survived by a brother, Doug Klein, and sister, Debbie Klein. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkCop Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I am Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.